Hello and welcome to Teaching English with the British Council Series 2. A podcast in which we try and provide solutions to some of the key questions being asked by English teachers around the world. Teaching English with the British Council. We are your hosts, we am Hamdan and Chris Salton. In each episode, we address one such question and attempt to answer it in two ways. Teaching English with the British Council. In the first part of each episode, we hear from a British Council project, programme or publication about something which is being done to address this issue. Across the 10 episodes of Series 2, we'll hear from teachers, trainers and researchers in a wide range of contexts, including Ukraine, Romania, Egypt and the United Kingdom. Teaching English with the British Council. In the second part, a leading English expert and practitioner will provide practical solutions which you can immediately try out wherever you work. Each episode of Teaching English is accompanied by a full transcript and show notes. These show notes provide additional information, a glossary of keywords, and links to relevant websites. Teaching English with the British Council This is episode 4, What is the difference between academic English and general English? Hello and welcome to episode 4 of Teaching English with the British Council. In this episode, we look at the difference between academic English and general English. So, Wayam, I think you have a foot in both camps here because you've both been a student of academic English and taught it. What's your experience been on that, on, on both sides of the equation? I think as a student, I looked at academic English at the beginning. It was strange to me because... A lot of the English I knew from my previous learning experience was mostly general English. So I wasn't used to academic English and I did not really differentiate between the two. But with more practice, as I did uh, English literature, I think it improved with reading, with listening and writing assignments and with my teachers, you know, drawing attention to some key phrases you can use in academic context. It's work in progress. And now as a PhD student, I still look at it as work in progress. And it definitely takes me more time to write than a native speaker. But at the end, it works. Languages are different in the register of a language differs in different contexts. And this is similar to Arabic. In Arabic, we have fusha, which is written only, it's not spoken. And we have amiya, which is a general English. So once you draw their attention to that, because there is, I think, a pre-notion that English is just the same in different contexts. So once you draw their attention to that, I think they are more aware that the register is different in different contexts. And these are some of the main issues which we're going to pick up in our interview with Tracy Cosley. Tracy Cosley is head of department and senior lecturer in the Department of Language and Linguistics at the University of Essex. Her research interests include academic literacies, English as an additional language learners, and student identity in writing at university. Hello, Tracy. Hi, Tracy. Thank you for having me. So, Tracy, for those of our listeners who may be unfamiliar with the term academic English, could you please explain how it is similar or different to general English? 
Yeah, I think maybe a simple but not uncomplicated answer might be that perhaps academic English might be the type of language you would expect to hear most in schools, in universities, and the type of language we would use when we're thinking of kind of formal assignments. One challenge with that simple answer is it suggests that there's just sort of one type of academic English or that academic English is the only English that exists in those spaces. So a type of English that is used in a particular way to achieve kind of tasks around education. What would be some of those similarities or differences, for example, between different academic disciplines? Yeah, absolutely. So I think you're absolutely right. This is one of the areas where that idea of one academic English becomes really difficult. So we could think maybe of the way in which people do science. But science is a really big term as well. So if we think of chemistry or biology, within that, there are also ranges um, of the types of things that people might be doing. So if we've got, um, so for in my own context at the university, we've got undergraduate biology, maybe, but that might be at first year, second year, third year level, postgraduate biology. So the language would look quite different there, again, depending on the kind of things people are doing. So I think one of the things that is relatively consistent is that there's a certain formality to academic language, maybe that isn't always present in more general English. And so the ways in which we might talk about science to you know our friends or in a kind of informal context might use slightly different language to if we're presenting it at a seminar or if we are presenting it for publication or for assessment so i think often the register so the tone or the formality and the types of words that we would choose are more formal in written and spoken academic work than they would be in more general english so the key thing is it's not something that's fixed it's something Mm. that, that changes Is that slightly problematic in terms of how you're preparing your students for that and the perceptions of some of the academics that you're working with as well, who may have a more sort of fixed sense of what Mm. academic English is? No, absolutely. And I think, you know, for for teachers, for learners, I think if you say this thing changes and is fluid, that can be quite intimidating because you think, how do I learn and how can I keep up? How do I know if what I'm doing is right or not? So I think there are core areas that you could focus on in classrooms. And so there's certain types of vocabulary that we know remain relatively consistent. And could work. you give some examples of that, maybe? Yeah. So, I mean, and not as a scientist, but maybe as someone working within in linguistics, for example. So a word that often comes up in the type of classes that I'm teaching are around sort of pedagogy. So we know that that's a kind of a, you know, a word relating to teaching that, you know, is a specific type of academic word. Um, So those kinds of things, I think, might be something. Or if we're thinking specifically about applied linguistics, then things around target language, again, kind of in an academic context, means something, you know, very particular. So the type of language that we are trying to learn, L1, L2, like these types of expressions, this language may be, even though L1 and L2 is problematic, but we know that those things are there and they're there in the literature and we can see them. So I think there are spaces for teachers to be able to say, yes, things change. And yes, this language is in motion, like all language, but there are really key features. I think one of the things that often effective students or effective teachers also do is to sort of help students pay or raise their awareness to how that language is working in text as well. So we're always reading things in academic context, aren't we? 
often you know we're reading for the content and people trying to understand what are these concepts so if we're looking at you know language learning theories you know a real interest in trying to understand what is being said to us and also then that attention to how is it being said so we can start to raise kind of awareness to how language is used what types of structures are there for me i think if we think about what we're trying to do so those types of practices maybe then that's also a way that the language can be kind of controlled a little bit more maybe you spoke briefly about some of the main challenges for students or educators to use academic english i'd like you to explore more of the challenges for students in using academic english absolutely so one one area i think is how that this type of language and these types of institutions i think can often be quite intimidating for people they don't feel like they should be speaking in these very formal ways or writing in these formal ways so kind of encouraging people to feel comfortable with that language i think there's some quite interesting work looking at this idea of academic language and how often it can be put against general language or general english or whatever language we're talking about somehow there's an opposite like academic language is better than something and i think that binary or that tension is often a difficulty for students and something that isn't really necessary i think so if we think that you know we have all kinds of language that we use so to, trying to understand where our students coming from what language are they coming into the classroom with and how can we build on that rather than say you know this is wrong you've got to have this language we say okay well what do we need to do how do we need to do it how are people within our different disciplines or our different subject areas how are they talking about these things and that this type of language is being a choice so it's not something that kind of comes in and replaces you know other language because somehow that other language isn't good enough or isn't appropriate enough but actually if we're trying to achieve this task in a way that is expected of us in terms of assessment or in terms of you know other external um, requirements then we might need to make adjustments so it's more of a greater awareness of mm. register or genre yeah. because equally Whilst it may sound strange if you use colloquial language in a seminar, if you mm. use a formal academic register in the cafe, that would be just as strange yeah. in that situation. Yeah, it was also interesting, Tracy, you talked a little bit there, or you referred to using the resources that students come to the classroom mm. with. I wonder if you could say a little bit about how you see students could use their own languages or their repertoire of languages mm. in order to develop their academic English skills. I think increasingly the field of English for academic purposes in general but you know universities also trying to look at ways in which you know multilingual classrooms work whether we think of multilingualism as being across different languages or across those different varieties of language as well so I think some of the most exciting presentations I've been to or some of the most exciting talks or the some of my most effective learning I think has probably taken place when people are able to take really complicated ideas and present them in a really simple fun and engaging way and i think their language is great because it has that adaptability and it doesn't have to be formal to be clever or formal to be clear sometimes you need that formality but sometimes that sort of colloquial or that movement between that fluidity is really helpful having that ability to move between your own resources as you're trying to develop writing or you're trying to develop your ideas in speaking so one of the things that you know we tend to focus on a lot in any kind of language development is you know how you you're writing drafting redrafting 
And I think there's often a pressure on students to feel that it's got to be perfect from the start. And I think more in my own writing now as well, and writing isn't something I always find at all easy, but I write in a way that I might speak just to get the ideas out and use that as a base and as a base to then build on and say, okay, well, I know I can't use this word in the final version, but what do I need to be able to replace that with? I think anything really that can help in terms of, again, that confidence of trying to be sure that what you're trying to say is what you want to be able to say. Otherwise, I guess people just end up staying within safe speak and they're not Mm. really saying what they want to say academics can sometimes not not realize how difficult it is what we're trying to ask these students to do we're asking to do something which is conceptually hard and linguistically hard at the same time and it seems silly not to say well use your first language or one of your languages (laughs) as a scaffolding to get to where you want to be yeah for sure because I think for a long time there was the sort of dogma of think through English only try and use English And I think, you know, that was a product of the training for most multilingual speakers that there isn't always a sense of, oh, I'm thinking through English. It's a much more fluid process that there is much more fluidity to how people are mobilizing their knowledge and their information. So to replicate that as much as possible in classrooms, I think, is also really valuable because that's what's happening. What about services like Google Translate or similar online translation softwares, do they enable students? Do you see them as more of replacing maybe the teacher role? If you're trying to understand something, like using those things, I think can facilitate understanding and facilitate meaningful exchanges, especially if you've got students working in multilingual contexts as well. So Google Translate works really nicely there. Students are able to kind of work, you present um, ideas in a language and then their classmates translate that into a language that they might be using in academic context. Some concerns often about Google Translate. Should this be allowed in assignment? Should this be allowed in tests? Yeah, the reason behind it, I guess, the purpose for using it is something that I think would be, is interesting. So I guess it comes very hard for you, though, to sort of, you know, to want to see where does Google Translate sort of end and where does the student's own writing start? Yeah, personally, I don't think it's really bad. I think that's that's how writing is. But if you were to say, oh, actually, this is helping me to understand this meaning and then I'm using that to track back or I'm using that to then go back to the references and make sure I understand it or I'm using that to add to the conversation. But also as well, you know, one question we we had a discussion in our department recently about if you don't acknowledge the role that potentially google translate can play in those types of assessments and those types of assignments i think that maybe that's a mistake but if you say okay you're using this technology explain how you're using it explain how you've used your own understanding of this language to add to the translation or correct the translation or see where the translation perhaps isn't correct those types of practices happen all the time in, in kind of translation um, work as well. So again, I think, you know, if, if we're trying to mirror mm. skills and practices from, you know, schools and universities to, you know, other life contexts, then I think, again, taking account of how we do stuff is is helpful and important. And moving on from that, what advice would you give to teachers who would like to go into the field of English for academic purposes? The happiest teaching I think I've done has been within EAP because I think it is dynamic, because I think it is a kind of a a changing subject. And because as an EAP teacher, I think you often are 
required to be really stretched and stretch in different ways. So you're trying to understand different subject areas. I mean, if, you know, in a perfect world, I would always be working within the field of, you know, applied linguistics or TESOL or, or things that I think I might know something about. So I think the role of an EAP teacher is really interesting in that sense. It's not boring ever, I think, an EAP tutor's role. So I think anyone that's interested in going into it, I would say yes, but also go into it knowing that it's a constant process of learning and relearning and engaging. And there isn't a sort of a one size fits all wonder lesson or approach. But I think what makes EAP really rich is that there are multiple voices and increasingly more multiple approaches to how you get to that end product. And I think that's really exciting. Tracy, thank you very much for your time today. Brilliant. Thank you. One of the things that Tracy mentioned is intimidation or imposter syndrome felt by students and teachers. And this is something I also noticed with my students. They are intimidated by academic English. And I think it's because it's mostly combined with, you know, assessment or some of them wants to apply for academic IELTS and to sit for an exam or to apply for a university. So there's, you know, this intimidation about academic English. Yeah, and I think one of the problems of it is that students sometimes see academic English as a, as a sort of gatekeeper. You know, it's about getting to the next level. It's about what do I need to know in order to get my IELTS 6.5 or 7 or whatever it is? What do I need to be able to get a, a merit in my essay? What do I need? And, and it's always kind of what do I need to get to that next level rather than actually how do I understand this how can I understand my topic more deeply how can I sort of talk to other people in my field in a, in a way that you know I can really express what I want to say and what I know about so I think sometimes there is that slight difference of what academic English is for or different perception of what academic English is for there has to be some fluidity when teaching academic English and by that I also mean using tools that can you know improve the learner's experience like Google Translate because I know in exams students are not allowed to use these tools but in reality we use these tools. We're now going to hear our field report which in this episode comes from the University of Leicester and the University of Leeds and their refugee program. My name is Alex Palanak and I'm from the University of Leicester and I'm one of the two refugee programme directors. Basically, over the past few years, there have been an increasing number of universities who have started offering degree level sanctuary scholarships for refugee background students. Uh, one of the schemes that encourages this is the Universities of Sanctuary Award Scheme. But the issue is that many of the students who want to apply for these places on degree programmes um, need to be able to improve their level of academic English first. And some universities are able to make free places available on pre-session or academic English programmes or IELTS courses and things like that. But actually, there just aren't enough places available on those sorts of programmes to meet the need of like the number of students who need those sorts of programmes. We decided that it would be a good idea to put on an online academic English programme specifically to meet the needs of refugee background students. I'm Deirdre McKenna and I'm working at the University of Leeds. I'm the other refugee programme director. 
the idea of the program is to give the students a taster of what it would be like to attend a pre-sessional or an EAP course. Uh, what we're trying to achieve is to give the students a more awareness of the type of language and the skills that they would need for an EAP course. Um, so those things that we're trying to help them develop are um, awareness of what it would be like to study in a UK HE context, um, how to study independently, how to manage their own time, working together in a group and um, developing critical thinking skills, presentation skills, essay writing and reflect reflection skills. So there's lots of things that we're trying to help them to achieve. It's not just in the teaching itself that we're trying to mitigate the effects of trauma, but it's also even in the, the comms with students, like even the emails that we send to students, we try to be trauma informed and very responsive. If a student has not attended a lesson, then we contact that student we just check in um it's like a pastoral sort of check in see if they're okay let them know that there's support available if they need it um and that has been really appreciated by the students and really effective what's different about a usual eap course i think is that uh, we've been trying to help students become more a part of the course by making decisions and you know even in small ways so we've taken a students as partners approach and helping students become more involved in, in decision-making and to kind of have more insight in how decisions are made rather than just imposing things on them. One of the core things that we've been trying to bear in mind when designing the materials is the level of personalization. So trying to be aware of themes that could bring up traumatic um, experiences for the students. So for example, topics like home, we're a bit cautious of that and giving students a choice as to the level of personalization that they want to bring into the into the classroom as well. We also have tried to take a very flexible approach in terms of things like submitting work or getting things done to deadlines and you know trying to, trying to respond to the students' needs in that way and not be so strict as we might normally be on a different EAP course. Hi, my name's Frances Acton and I teach on the uh, refugee programme. But why I'm really pleased to be teaching on this is that there's been a growing demand for something more structured, something more academic that gives the students a set of skills that they can use when they, they go on to do academic study at, at a, an institution, a college or university. It also means we are very aware of the special circumstances of these students. We do training on um, trauma-informed pedagogy and we also try to be very inclusive so there's an element of social justice classroom situation could become another traumatic experience if you don't take account of of these particular issues and, and needs often it's one size fits all whereas with mm. students as partners you can help students to understand the different say educational academic culture learning culture and once they start to understand that to then feed back and help mm -hmm. us to actually meet their needs better which I don't think is happening very often in EAP we deliver it you know it's done to them my name's Michael Cook and I'm a tutor on the refugee program I think a lot of refugees spend a lot of time years sometimes basically in limbo waiting for someone else to make a decision about something. And for a lot of people who are going to spend the rest of their life in the UK, their life is on pause for a long time. And if we can help them get back to their studies, get back to having 
qualifications and continuing with their profession or whatever. That's a very, very important thing to do. While we tend to be quite protective and quite proactive in terms of giving them the freedom to talk about something or not talk about it or or as they wish, at the same time, we are aware that, for example, if they want to go to university and go through the whole higher education process and get degrees and stuff like that, Mm. that other people will be making other demands on them that will potentially Mm. be a lot less flexible than we are. When universities or the government as part of a visa requirement says IELTS, you've got got to have this, then they're already discriminating against people who don't have the money. The students on this program are often people who, some of them anyway, are people who actually have a career and they actually have qualified in something already. And this has been kind of stopped that that's quite different from a lot of pre-sessional courses where, you know, they're about to go into an educational system. They're about to get those kinds of qualifications. My name is Apophia and I teach on the refugee program as well as help out as a assistant research participant. With refugee background students, there tend to be several factors that impact on their attendance and confidence, um, sometimes general language learning, I would say. Uh, there was one student who clearly had accommodation issues. He arrived late and he explained that, you know, he had to leave one place and had just started to settle in another place. And that was the reason for his lateness, you know, to open up and have a conversation that involves what they have experienced. Takes time, not only to build up to that trust, you know, that level of trust, but also to discuss it takes time. My name is Mundar Alwadi. I'm from uh, Syria. I came here... uh... Two years ago, about two years ago. The, the teachers are doing uh, a great job, exactly great job. They are putting us on the right path towards academic uh, writing uh, and uh, to achieving uh, our goals. Uh, after 12 years without study, this course has come to remove the rust uh, on my brain. <laughs> yeah, and make me uh, make me uh, ready for um, academic research, uh, challenge myself to achieve more. I will uh, search, and uh, I've already contacted with uh, uh, some universities, and they uh, welcome me. Uh, they told me uh, just uh, send your uh, your documents, and uh, we will uh, offer you uh, a good offer uh, or right offer to me. Hi, my name is Sam. I am I arrived the UK uh, on August on two, 2021. But this course is focusing on academic uh, writing, academic sources, and everything is academic. First of all, I should mention that uh, tutor's behavior really been, uh, encourages me to uh, study more, study better. And uh, according to our method of learning, uh, they use really new method of teaching, uh, which I never saw anywhere else. Uh, I'm looking mm, looking forward to going to university for master degrees. And I applied for uh, some universities, which gave us some sort of scholarship. Uh, and I got some offers, but all of them were conditional. I need to uh, gain a English qualifications. So I'm waiting for my English qualification and this year, hopefully, I'm going to the university. Yeah, we have had to be very responsive and flexible and um, 
kind of understanding as well that you know our students are coming from challenging backgrounds and have are working under challenging situations as well so maybe things that normally work don't necessarily work for this cohort the UK, for example, is extremely lucky to have these people here, many of whom are very, very qualified, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. who, despite all the things that have happened to them, are so positive. Uh, up to me, I would like to recommend this course to all refugees. I would like to say to Refuge AB to extend this experiment to uh, involve more students in uh this uh program uh because as i think majority of us need this course other courses are highly expensive i just advise uh refuge ab to extend that to involve more students so that was the refugee program at the university of leicester uh, wayam any thoughts on what you've heard there it sounds like a great program for refugees, and I specifically like that they personalize the experience for refugees and that they give them a voice. And I think that's very important, especially for refugees, to be able to choose the topics and to be able to engage with the content. And it's also a trauma-informed approach. So it takes into consideration their past experiences. Sometimes we tend to neglect that those people had experiences and that we should take that into account when they come to the classroom, they come with that baggage, which definitely can affect their learning and their learning outcomes. So it's great that can be taken into consideration. It's not just for refugees, it's for students in general. People, students come with that baggage and they also have the notion that academic English is a bit rigid and difficult to learn. So giving them that flexibility makes it more engaging for them. That's all for this episode of Teaching English with the British Council. Please join us next time where we look at the issue of how we can use story to teach English. Until then, goodbye. Teaching English with the British Council Series 2 is hosted by Wiam Hamdan and Chris Souten. The producer is Elizabeth Dyer. Executive producer, Chris Dyer. Salsan Abukara is the Arabic language consultant. I think as a student, I did not engage much. <laughs> Thank you, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> hope, your, I hope your professors aren't listening. Yeah, no, I, I need to say something different. I think I think as a student, <laughs> they're going to hate me if I say that. Yeah. Teaching English with the British Council.